Moncrief on News Talk. To chat to more stories from around the globe, as always, this time of the week. Good afternoon, Jonathan. How are you today? How are you doing, Tom? How are you getting on? Glad to hear you I'm... have Celtic fans amongst your listeners. Excellent little piece of uh, history there from, from your listener. A wonderful story, and, and yeah. you'd, it's it's funny, more isn't made of it. Um, I saw a little bit of a United documentary last night. You'd imagine there'd be one on Celtic as well. That's an even better story. Um, you're starting us off this week in uh, Kenya, where I think listeners may be surprised possibly to hear that there is quite a Rastafarian um, group of people living there. Yeah, there's a, 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 a relatively decent amount of, of Rastafarians there, I suppose, given that the homeland is is Ethiopia and it's not too far away, uh, you, you might expect some sort of representation. But um, this particular group, the Rastafarian Society of Kenya, has filed a petition to decriminalise the use of cannabis, or as they call it, bang, uh, for spiritual purposes. Now, they are basically arguing that followers of the faith um, who use cannabis by smoking, drinking, bathing, or, or burning incense uh, from it, use it for um, spiritual uh, purposes. Uh, they also use Fair it for enough. ceremonial purposes and, 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 and even in their food. And, and it's, it's part of what they do um, in order to, you know, connect themselves with their creator. Uh, and they say that, you know, because they're a protected group and because this is part of their faith, uh, they should be allowed to um, um, grow and use the cannabis uh, as, as you know, somebody might use a, a crucifix in, in Christianity to do whatever they do with those things. Right. I find the fact that they call it bang uh, might go against them somehow. I, I just feel that's not the greatest PR angle to take with us. Um, are there many of them? I, I mean, I'm surprised. I always thought it was Jamaica was the home of the Rastafarians. Yeah, well, it's a it's a world organization. I couldn't tell you now how many exactly there are in in, in Kenya, but um, it, it is enough for them to to bring um, a ruling in two thousand. There was a case brought to the High Court, I seem to remember, in two thousand and nineteen, uh, where basically they felt that they were being persecuted. Basically, police were coming in and raiding them because raiding their houses because they were growing cannabis and and smoking cannabis. Um, but they brought a case to the High Court in 2019 and the High Court ruled that they should be treated the same way as any other religious group and so their practices should be respected. Okay. Um, they're saying that that's not being done. And at the moment, because cannabis is considered a narcotic in Kenya, uh, you can be sent to jail for 10 to 20 years. All right, so Kenya has quite a strict um, anti-drug policy then, because that's really the deciding factor. I mean, it's one thing to come forward and say you're a religion and this is part of my religion, but if something the religion is doing is illegal, you don't really have much of a leg to stand on, do you? Well, that's the thing, and uh, and uh, they, they could well be on a hiding to nothing. But anyway, they're bringing this petition and we'll, we'll see how it pans out for them. Right. Uh, we won't be betting on it. Um, Meanwhile, your next story involves Japan, and this this is when you describe this, it's a scary little uh, scenario, isn't it? It's a scary enough story. All right, it involves a Japanese train driver um, who took ill. Um, this happened a few weeks ago, I think, and he was he was driving his bullet train. He was going at about 150 kilometers per hour. Uh, there was 160 passengers on board at the time. And he became ill. He suffered a stomachache. 
needed to use the toilet urgently and asked his conductor to jump into the cockpit and drive the train. Now, the problem for him is that uh, obviously he, he was in urgent rush to go to the bathroom uh, and, and it would have been an awkward situation for him otherwise. Um, but the conductor in question didn't have a license to drive the train. So that's a bit of a problem. Right. Um, it came to the attention of the Central Japan Railway Company, who were you know, presumably the people who were operating the train. They reported themselves effectively to uh, authorities, okay. and uh, authorities are basically looking into investigating it now and, and seeing what uh, might happen to both the driver and the conductor. Um, so, uh, you know, it, it, they're, they're very, shall we say, proud of their uh, safety record on those bullet trains. I don't think they've ever had a crash on a bullet train. They have had train crashes, but not on bullet trains. And uh, they want to keep that up. And this kind of thing probably doesn't fit in with that uh, with that policy. What were, what was he supposed to do, though? I mean, it, obviously, it has to happen at some point. You get some major little emergency. You have to vacate somehow. Um, what was he supposed to do? It, an excellent choice of words there, Tom. Uh, yes. Um, was good, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, they're supposed to basically call into the, the command centre and they are allowed to ask a conductor to take over the controls, but only if the conductor has a driver's license. But presumably the driver in question, you know, didn't ask the conductor before, do you have a license or do you not? Because I, you know, I okay. feel like I might have to go to the bathroom in the middle of this thing. So it, it was an emergency, but he didn't follow protocols. And, and this is the reason he could be in trouble. As I said, the two of them are in trouble. Um, you'd feel a bit sorry yeah. for the conductor who was just helping out his colleague. Um, but, uh, as I said, they, they like to keep their safety standards up, up to the best, uh, up to the best. Right. Well, as the judge here, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm admiring their safety record. Last major incident happened in 2005, which is incredible, isn't it? Uh, so long ago. Um, but they didn't provide the driver with a qualified, uh, conductor to go beside him. I, you know, I think there's, there's, there's fault on both sides there. Yeah, uh, there's certainly a lesson to be learned there. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, on to India now, where I think the uh, you would have to say there's two sides to every story. And we'll have to see mm. where we come down to this. What's going on in India? OK, it's it's complicated and, and I suppose it fits in with a lot of things that have been going on over the last few years. Um, <clears throat> around the particularly around the BJP party, Narendra Modi's uh, government, um, which is majority Hindu and you would have to say, and without being controversial, but I, I don't think it's controversial to say it, they, they, they would be leaning on, on the, the right of, of that, uh, of the political spectrum and have shown their hand to be particularly anti-minority, uh, particularly when it comes to Sikhs and Muslims in the country. And there's been an awful lot of this kind of thing going on. Uh, this happened in Uttar Pradesh, which we, <clears throat> which has a lot of problems, actually. Um, but uh, effectively, last week, a, a mosque was bulldozed, right? It was, it was, it was taken down without notification after it was de declared an illegal structure by the local administration, right? Now, that led to, as you can imagine, complaints and, and quite a bit of uh, unhappiness amongst the Muslim community, not just in this state or in this locality, but right across the country. And as that um, groundswell, should we say, of dissent began to grow, uh, the local administration decided that they would take action against the leaders, the Muslim leaders uh, that, of, of, of these protests, right? So the, effectively, they've 
filed a police case against nine local Muslim leaders who've challenged this demolition, right? So it seems to be kind of counterintuitive in a way. You you would have thought that you know maybe the yeah the uh, you know the local um, administration would be the ones being taken to court for for illegally tearing down a mosque. And this is what the the people who ran the mosque say. They say it's been there for years. Some say it's been there for over one hundred years. They have you know documentary evidence that it's been around for a long time. Uh, it was registered back in two thousand and nineteen when the law was changed. And it was registered as a mosque, and it should be overseen by what's called a, a, a wakif board, right? So that's a kind of um, yeah. a national board that oversees that. And they're the only ones who can really do anything with registered mosques. Now, the local administration say that this mosque was built on government land uh, and that through some sleight of hand, the nine local Muslim leaders that they are, have filed the police case against uh, managed to register this mosque and it should never be registered in the first place and 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 the arguments go back and forth but i think at the crux right. of it is there is there is no mosque where there has been one for a long time yeah and this is causing major religious tension uh not just in Uttar pradesh but right across india and it's been something that's been going on for a while it's okay. not the first time something like this has happened I, I said that it's uh, two sides to every story, and what I was kind of referring to is that the the local um, Muslim leaders are saying that look, it's been here for decades, and the the lads who pulled it down are basically saying, oh no, it wasn't, and that you just basically illegally built a government building or, or registered a building last year uh, without informing us. So you know, I, I for a moment I thought maybe there's, there's you know it's hard to say where the right land lies but realistically there's a lot of evidence to suggest isn't there in the community that this building has been here for a, a long time oh yeah i mean uh, apart from the fact that you know generations have gone into the place and evidently been seen coming in and out of it you know to to to, yeah. to pray you know they have it might seem sort of <clears throat> sort of silly but they've got electricity bills dating back to the 1950s land survey map dating back to the 1990s uh, there's all sorts of different things so there's Look, there's very little doubt that this was, this is a legitimate mosque that's been around for a while, you know, and um, and that some okay. people are suggesting that what what the, the what the local administration has done is something that they call a slap suit, which is basically where they 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 land this suit uh, on these people, right, to get them to shut up, yeah. basically, right, because the right. costs of of yeah, of the cost of going through the yeah. case and that kind of thing and the hassle of it. Uh, will will be so burdensome that they'll just drop their complaints and they'll go away. Um, uh, so you know that's what some people are suggesting that, that the part the part the parties involved or the administration are trying to do here. Okay. Um, but on the Rastafarians, by the way, I have texts coming in to tell me that there are many Rastafarian people, both Irish and non-Irish, in Ireland. Ethiopia is the land of Rastafari, but the religion originated from Jamaica. And there are two Irish people living in that area in Kenya, one a Rastafarian and the other one living amongst them. Um, God, it'd be great if you could get, get in touch with the Rastafarian yeah. Irish lad find out what's going on there exactly. Um, so on to uh, Chechnya. It, it, there's never a good story from Chechnya, is there? That is a good point, Tom. Has to be said. Uh, it, this and, and inevitably they always involve that uh, the leader Ramzan Kadyrov. Um, in this case, <clears throat> he's used his Instagram account to threaten a fifteen-year-old. Uh, so this fifteen-year-old, uh, apparently in a, an Instagram post, uh, 
referred to the the leader of Chechnya. He's been around for a long time at this stage. He must be 20 years, if not longer. Um, he referred to him as Satan. Uh, a few people would just dis- few people would disagree, yes. to be honest with you. But anyway, Kadyrov, who has his own Instagram account, uh, went uh, live on Instagram as you do. And I've seen the video of it, and it's really quite scary and really immature, actually, to be honest with you. He's like a sort of a 12-year-old bully yeah. uh, talking in, in the live broadcast, basically saying, you won't sleep at night, you'll be writing your will, and I will destroy you. Now, sure enough, two days God. later, Chechen TV broadcast a video in which a man apologizes for his 15-year-old son, and the son appears uh, beside him on camera. I don't think he says a word, really, <clears throat> but... The father says, you know, sorry, we didn't raise him properly. We didn't mean to do it this way, and, and we're really sorry. But this is something that uh, Kadyrov does. He, he, he sort of catches people who say things against him, and he brings them on to state television and, and humiliates it. There's another video I saw recently of a, of a husband and wife, and the wife had suggested, I don't know what channel she had used, but the wife had suggested that Kadyrov was corrupt somehow, which clearly an outrageous accusation. And uh, he brought her on TV and uh, like, you know, Michael Parkinson or the late late show or something like that. And he's sitting across from her and making her uh, confess that she was wrong. And the poor woman is crying and it's, it's utterly God. intimidating and, and it's really very strange. Um, so he's, he's done it a few times. Uh, some people say that, you know, they're not sure whether this, they caught the real boy that, you know, made yeah. this description of him as Satan and that, that it might have been a setup. You know, he's he's not one for losing face. Um, so okay. he tends to respond to these things quite quickly. Um, it's it's a terrifying use of Instagram, isn't it, to, to terrify people? It's horrific. Um, your next story, I have to say, it just... God, there are so many different layers to it. It sounds like a stamp is being banned, but behind that stamp is some story. Tell us all. Right, so there's um, these islands uh, called the Chagos Islands, right? And they're, uh, I think there's about 60 of them all together. They're not from the, not far from the Maldives. Excuse my uh, dry throat here, Tom, by the way. Um, they're not far from the Maldives, um, but they're owned by Mauritius, or at least that's what the United Nations basically say, right? So there's a dispute going on between Britain and the, and Mauritius, and there has been for quite a long time. When Mauritius gained its independence in 1968, um, the British paid them about £4 million for the islands, right? And subsequently, they gave the largest island, a place called Diego Garcia, to the United States, Right, and the, the United States have an air base there. I think they still have it, but that involved getting yeah. rid of uh, of about 2,000 uh, uh, Diego Garcians from the island uh, in, the 19th, in the early 1970s. And that's kind of at the crux of the dispute. They want to go back, and they want the, the, the U.S. air base off the island. They want to go home. And, and the U.N., a number of years ago, found in favor of Mauritius taking control of these islands, right, and basically saying to the British, look, these are no longer yours. But... The British have kind of continued to, uh, I suppose, rule over it and 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 to publish things that would um, demonstrate that how they see their you know the, the political status, right? So they have stamps, yeah, and they have issued stamps. Uh, so these stamps issued by the British Indian Ocean Territory, which is what they call the Chagos Island, have now yeah. been rendered invalid. Okay. 
So there's right. an organization, I didn't know if you knew this, I, I didn't really, the United Nations Universal Postal Union. Their council has recommended that stamps from the British Indian Ocean Territory, okay, are no yeah. longer recognized. They've been rendered invalid. So basically, if you use one of these stamps and you host, you hope to send a letter from this part of the world using these stamps, it's not going to be recognized anywhere else. So presumably, if it lands in Ireland or Italy or whatever, right. it'll just go straight into the bin. Um, right. I, and that is, I suppose, one of the demonstrable ways in which uh, the United Nations are trying to show that it favors Mauritius uh, or Mauritian control over these islands. What a story. It's, um, I worked out it's 6,000 miles away from London. Um, and, oh, is and it? Still, oh, yeah, it's still laying. It's, 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 it might as well be in the middle of nowhere. Um, it is, although still it lay- is strategically important, I believe. So, um, uh, so yes. that's why they're kind of holding on to it. And I'd say they're getting a fair few quid off the United States for that, uh, for that island. Yeah. Fascinating stuff. Um, grim Tales from Guatemala and a, a prison... God, it seems to have it seems to have both the major ba- uh, gangs in it. It's kind of a uh, looking for trouble in many ways. Tell us more. Yeah, this is the 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 two gangs that often come up in this part of the world: the the Marisava Truca and the Barrio Eighteen, who <clears throat> um, originated in Los Angeles, as a matter of fact, as a result of the civil war in El Salvador. So you know, loads of people left El Salvador, went to Los Angeles. Uh, and they set up gangs there basically to protect themselves from other gangs. And when the war ended, uh, the Civil War ended in 1992, they were shipped back to El Salvador. They went back into a place that was ungoverned, ungovernable, and they decided, great, we'll run the place. And that's effectively what they've done in El Salvador, and it has spread out to other countries, right? Guatemala, uh, Honduras uh, being some of those countries as well. So in Guatemala, these two uh, gangs... Uh, are responsible for an awful lot of the murders, uh, and the murder in in this country, and the murder rate is really high, um, uh, you know, relative to the relative to the population, and they're kind of out of control. Uh, and in this particular prison, it's known for its its violence. This is Cantel Prison, yeah, uh, which is in the middle of the country, and seven inmates. Uh, were killed at the weekend. I won't go into the gruesome details no, of it, particularly don't. about this time, yeah, school time, is, that kind of thing. But let's suffice yeah. to say that it was not good. And uh, it wouldn't be the first time something like this has happened. Uh, it's an ongoing problem, but it doesn't help that this particular prison is only supposed to house 500 inmates, and there's about 2,000 in there at the moment. And uh, it's a very tense and, and, and always potentially violent situation uh, yeah. in this particular prison. A vision of hell. Uh, Jonathan, yeah. sadly, we're beaten by the clock, but thank you very much for joining us. As always, pleasure talking to you. Coming up after the break, an unusual venue for a gig. We'll hear from one entrepreneur who's turned a van into a performance venue. Moncrief on News Talk.